0: Uh, okay, so if you've got a Bible with you, let's, turn, let's open it up to John chapter 1. We're actually starting uh, this morning in verse 35, and we're going to be taking it all the way through to the end of the first chapter of John. There in verse 35, John tells us, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he went on to say to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man.
1: A lot of times in life, when we uh, use a word, we have to define what that word means. We have to explain it uh, because we can mean a lot of different things when we say something. I'll give you an example. Uh, if you say, I have to go to school today or I have school today, that could mean something very different from the person sitting next to you. For some people, going to school is uh, staying at home and uh, in your pajamas and doing schoolwork for a couple hours a day and five, six hours a day and, uh, and then, you know. The rest of your day is yours to do whatever you want with. For some people going to school or maybe like you're like at school online and you, you know, get a degree right there at your computer. It's great. Sitting in a coffee shop all day. For other people going to school, something you actually, you have to go somewhere for like six hours a day. You take your lunch. There's recess. You're a bully or you get bullied. All the fun stuff that comes to school. And then you go home and you're like, okay, good. It's over. And now I'm at home and I get to be not at school anymore. Uh, for some people going to school is... Is everything. It's like your whole life. You actually live at school. You go to school and you're there for months at a time. And you live with the very people that you're learning with. And you eat with them and you sleep in dorms with them. And the only time that you even go home is on vacations. And so for you to go to school means something so different. Uh, It's like that if you talk about, if you say, I'm going to exercise. Uh, I'm going to exercise today. It means very different things to different people. Some people go run two miles for exercise. Some people jazzercise. They do the jazzercise thing. They put the tape in. Like Pastor Matt, he does the tape and he does jazzercise. He does the thigh master and everything. And uh, some people do like, they're throwing tractor tires around to each other. They're like throwing them and trying to catch them and they're doing all this crazy stuff. Uh, I saw some people jogging through downtown Oregon City with uh, weights. They were just carrying weights around, you know. Uh, we have all different ways that we define exercising. Uh, and so when you say I'm going to work out, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. If you say I'm going to, I got to go, you know, clean my house, take care of my house this weekend. I've got a weekend of housework, okay? For some people, that means uh, I have somebody that I pay to clean my house, and I have somebody that I pay to do my yard work, and I have, uh, I have to just make sure that I pay them what I'm supposed to, and I'm out of their way, and I'm not there getting in their business and their way so they can do the job that I want them to do. Uh, for some people, it's like, no, I go out on Saturday, I spend all day, day, uh, mowing the lawn, trimming the hedges, you know, got to put on the little jean shorts or whatever and get out there, Pastor Matt does at least, and then, you know, spend the next day, I'm in the house, I got to clean everything in my house, I got to fix all the stuff that's broken, you know, and that's what it means to take care of your house. Uh, For some people, it's like, I don't want to deal with any of that stuff, I moved to a studio apartment, I got nothing I have to do, so for them to clean up their house, it literally means 15 minutes of straightening things up, and they're like, I love where I live, because I don't have to do anything on top of this to clean my house, but to say I got to take care of my house means a lot of different things to a lot of different people some people say um, if you say i'm going to make dinner i'm gonna eat dinner right i'm gonna eat dinner make dinner could mean i'm gonna like make a box of mac and cheese which I have one friend I, I work with. This guy he makes like four boxes a week. That's like how what he does for dinner. Um, some people four hours they spend buying stuff and preparing like an amazing meal with like multiple courses that tastes so good and is like the central part of their day and their time together as a family. That's what it means to have dinner. For some, I've got one friend who dinner comes in a box on his doorstep. He just brings it inside. He opens it up. Tell him what to make. They give him the ingredients and takes care of it all right there. And for some people, going to dinner, having dinner means like I'm really. Good at ordering, and I'm really good at knowing where to go and what to order on the nights that I want to eat at that place, and that's how I have dinner. You talk about different things. You talk about the same thing, use the same word, but you mean totally different things depending on your experience, your life, what you're doing, what the reality is for you. Uh, when we talk about what we're talking about this morning, which is discipleship, following Jesus, which is what we start to see happen here in the Gospel of John. We have to actually define that. What does it mean to be one of these people who follows Jesus? What does it mean to do this thing that we call in the church discipleship? If you are one of the people who chooses to follow Jesus, then the way you define that is literally the single most important definition in your life. Because it will determine everything about the way you actually live your life. How do I determine, how do I define what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Last week, we talked about John the Baptist, and that John had this thing called a testimony, which basically meant he lived his entire life as a billboard that said to people, Jesus is the way. Jesus is life. And he did this thing that to us in the modern world seems absolutely inconceivable, which is he actually had a lot of abilities and talents. He had an amazing backstory about how God brought him into being to begin with. He was from a very important family that was incredibly respected. He had had an important role as a rabbi in the Jewish faith. He was was an amazing teacher and prophet— And he uh, was baptizing people because they were convinced of what he said about Jesus the Messiah coming. And he got so much attention for what he did that people were coming to see him, both people who agreed and disagreed with him. And he was able to do something that we think is absolutely crazy to even conceive of in the modern world, which is he took recognition that was being given to him, and he turned it around and he said, I want you to walk away from me thinking about Jesus, not thinking about me. Which is something that some of us or many of us struggle to even give the appearance of doing because of how much we want people to come and to see us and to look at us. We saw that what John did was self-denial. It was the clearest first example of someone actually saying, I'm going to deny myself to follow Jesus. I'm going to actually not be about proclaiming how great I am. I want people to know who who Jesus is. And denial of yourself seems to be this thing with following Jesus, but that doesn't sound very fun. That doesn't sound very appealing. And what you also see in John is the absolute freedom that comes from doing this. That to actually be able to walk into a room and say, I don't need the people in this room to see me a certain way. I don't need to look in the mirror and even feel a certain way about myself. What matters to me is the God who is the only one who actually, when we're honest, understands us. The only one who truly knows me in my heart. That in that, there is tremendous freedom. And so denying yourself actually leads to greater freedom than it leads to being restricted and bound. What John was doing was something called a testimony. He had a testimony. And we see that carry over here in the next part of the passage that we're looking at. We see that what happens is the next day after this interaction with John and Jesus, where Jesus is baptized, we talked about last week, that... Jesus is walking by, and John tells a few of his disciples, there he is, there's the Messiah. Now, he's talked about him before, I imagine. He's told them about this guy, Jesus, before. And so they know who he's talking about, and the moment that John says that, few of his disciples leave, and they immediately go and start walking after Jesus. This is interesting because uh, this apost- or this this gospel, the gospel of John, emphasizes people seeking Jesus. Whereas many of the other gospels emphasize Jesus calling people out. And we see in the very beginning, these are people who were waiting for the Messiah to come. He hasn't done anything to really say, I'm going to heal all your sickness and disease. I'm going to do these miraculous things for you. He's simply, they've been told by their, by their rabbi, their Messiah, this is the guy follow him. And so they go, okay, that's what we've been searching for anyway. And they go to follow him. These men aren't called and they're not even sent. They seek Jesus. And so as they go and begin to walk after Jesus, he turns around and he asks them this question. And it's such a good question. It's such an important question. He turns around and he says, what are you seeking? And they say, Rabbi, teacher, they say, we just want to know where you're staying. And then they go and they follow him. He turns around and he asks them this question, what are you seeking? And this question is the question. And there's a reason why Jesus asked it of them. Uh, You might think it's obvious, right? Well, obviously, they're seeking the Messiah. They've left John. There's disciples. Jesus knows everything. He knows a lot, at least it seems. So why would he ask them this question that's really obvious? Because this is the question that everyone has to ask when they encounter Jesus. The question that you ask, what am I seeking? What am I looking for in this? What am I looking for here? Oh, I see. We never went through those. Sorry. What are you seeking, is the question that we ask. Like, I'm here, so what do I really want here, right now, right now? And some of us don't know what we want. We're like, I, that's the hardest question you could possibly ask me, I don't really know what I want. Some of us know exactly what we want, which is just not to be here. We're like, I didn't choose this, I didn't pick this, you know, someone else made me come or something. That's an easy one to answer. Jesus asked the question, what are you seeking? What do you want here? And some of us, even though we don't know what we want, the only thing that we do know is that we just don't feel okay. We don't feel happy. We don't actually feel good about where we're at. We, we say, I don't. I, I feel like I'm missing something. Something's off. Something's wrong. And so that's why I'm here. That's why I'm seeking Jesus. There are so many reasons why we actually uh, follow after or even are interested in who Jesus is. And what he's saying is the first question you have to ask yourself is, what am I looking for here? Some people are searching, even in life, some people are just searching for security. We go, I just want to know that I'm going to have enough. I'm going I'm to be able to, whether it's money, earn enough, save a month, save enough, be okay, be safe, be provided for, provide for myself and know that in this world, I'm not going to really be at a place where I'm going to be in desperate want need. I just want security. Most of us can relate to that. And yet, that's like the lowest thing that you can shoot for in life, isn't it? Saying, I just want to know that I'll have enough of what I need. And I'm honestly looking for a way to just at least have peace in knowing that I have that. Some are searching for meaning. You actually want to matter. You want to know that, that this life that you're living alongside these billions of other people is actually going to be significant and it's going to mean something because seeing ourselves as just one of billions doesn't seem very appealing to us in this life. And so we say, what am I searching for? I'm searching for some way to know that what I'm actually doing in my life and with my life and who I'm becoming is actually something that's going to matter ultimately in the grand scheme of things. Some of us are searching simply for peace. We just want to be at peace. We just want to be able to, in all the chaos of our life or the things that we're going through, we just want to be in a place where we can finally have a sense of peace. And it seems to elude us and evade us all the time. And so when Jesus turns around and says, what are you seeking? I look at you and I think maybe I can have peace. Some of us simply seek where the crowd is going. Some of us, and many in Jesus' time, saw the crowd and they said, this seems to be working for some people. I'm, I'm honestly just, I'm attracted to what seems to be working for people. People resonate with it and they respond to it. And so I'm looking for that. If it works for them, maybe it can work for me. If it helps them, maybe it can help me. Some of us simply want to be Right. We're just seeking the ability to know at the end of the day that we're right, that we, that we know the right thing, that we're doing the right thing, that we're living out the right thing. Some of us, it's because we're self-righteous and we just want to know that we're better than other people, but some of us just simply know it really matters to me that I'm doing the right thing. And Jesus maybe is a way to get there. Some of us want to experience miracles. We want to experience healing. We want to see things happen that we've heard that Jesus can do. And so we seek after him looking for the miraculous, looking for things to be changed as God intervenes in this world and in our life. Some of us simply don't want to feel guilty anymore. We are constantly feeling like our response to everything that happens in the world is what did I do? What did I do wrong? How did I mess this up? How did I get this wrong? And so when, when we come and we begin following or even looking or seeking or being at all interested in who Jesus is, the reason for it is I'm so overwhelmed with guilt, I just don't want to feel badly about what I'm doing or how I'm living or who I am anymore. I've constantly been at this thing, done this thing in my life where I'm, I want to be the new, improved, better version of Ed than I was before. No, 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 that was the old That was the old me because the guilt was so much so great that I had to feel like I had to like constantly almost reinvent myself, you know, with God's help because that's what I was seeking was to just not feel inadequate and feel bad anymore. Some of us just feel like we're behind and life isn't going the way we thought it would go and we're disappointed and we just don't want to feel that way. We want to catch up. We want to actually be where things matter. And some of us literally just want everything to stay exactly the way it is. <laughs> we're like, I actually am pretty good right now. Things are good. So in following Jesus, I, in coming to him, I just, I, I, I'm really happy right now. And unfortunately, that's the group that sometimes has the hardest time with Jesus because he tends to change things a lot in one way or another. Why does he ask this question? Jesus is not the lady at the makeup counter at the mall when you walk up who's like, what are you looking for, right? What can I do for you? How can I make you look? Jesus isn't this car salesman you drive up on the lot and he goes, hey, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? How can I give you something? He's not saying I'm a divine cosmic vending machine. I Just tell me what you want. That's what I'm here for because I can give you anything that you need. He's not asking us that because he wants to give us specifically the thing we're coming to look for. He's asking that because at the beginning of any relationship in your life, you should ask yourself that question. What am I looking for in this? And if you've been in a relationship for a long time, you know what it's like maybe to not have asked yourself that question, and then to find yourself pretty far down the road of a relationship with someone and realize, I don't think we were seeking the same thing here, or I didn't really think about what I wanted here, and now what I've wanted has changed. Jesus knows that the question we must ask ourselves first is, what am I looking for here in him? And I can say as a pastor and someone who talks to people so often about Jesus, I find myself wishing more and more that people would simply ask themselves this question, what am I looking for? Here on a Sunday morning in the Bible study that I'm in, in a single daily time that I sit down and I open up the Bible and I look at it, what am I actually doing this for right now? What am I looking for in this right now? Because if we can't look inward and ask ourselves that question and understand what we're actually seeking— then where can we go with that time and that thing? To stop and look and ask ourselves, what am I seeking? This is the question that Jesus asked these men who come to him. And so they tell him, we just want to know where you're staying. We want to go with you. We want to follow you. And so he tells them where he's staying, and they go. And then what we see happen is we see that these men do something, one of them specifically, that is so characteristic of a person who has encountered Jesus. We read about how Andrew, one of these guys, goes to someone who would eventually be called Peter, who's kind of a big deal. And uh, there's other accounts and other gospels that like stretch out and flesh out exactly how this happened because these guys went back and then he started fishing with his brother and then Jesus came and there was this whole thing about making them fishers and men. But what we see happen is we see that he goes to his brother and he says, we have found the Messiah. The first thing that he does after encountering Jesus is he goes and finds somebody who means a lot to him and he says, we have found him. The automatic response of the gospel in somebody's life, of Jesus, of interacting with Jesus for many people is simply to go and tell someone else about what happened. You don't see, I, I think the best example of this, the one that I love the most is in Isaiah, where the prophet has a vision of God and he's with God. And he's, and he's like, and he's, and he's there and there are angels and it says that he is, he is made aware of how unclean and sinful he is. And so they take a coal from a fire and they put it to his lips. Promise you that's not something that we're gonna do here. And they put it to his, if it is, it won't be on, you know, if you see something, say something. We should actually say something if we see something like that. And he puts it to his lips and it says that it basically cleanses him of his sin. And as Isaiah is cleansed of his sin, and as he's made new in God, in this experience, and this vision that he has, this is immediately what happens after he's cleansed of his sin. We read in Isaiah 6, 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. The first thing that Isaiah does after being made aware of his sin and then cleansed of it is he says, send me. Send me somewhere else with this message. And so these first followers of Jesus, their automatic response is to go and find people and to say, let me tell you about the Messiah who has come. And so they bring the Messiah to Jesus. They bring, they, he brings Peter to, to Jesus, basically. And Jesus changes his name and says that you, uh, he changes his name to Peter. And he says, you will now be called Peter. And he ends up becoming a disciple who's very close with him. Then we read about the next day that he comes to Philip and Jesus finds Philip, and he simply says these two words that characterize essentially what we call discipleship. He walks up to Philip, rather than Philip seeking him, and he says this, follow me. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to follow him. At the time, uh, there were people, Jewish men, who followed, young, young, young very young men actually, who followed uh, rabbis. And a rabbi was a religious teacher, and they would bring disciples around with them. And these these disciples would follow them so closely that there was this saying that they would be covered in the dust of the rabbi because they would follow them so closely every day. They would live with them. They would eat with them. They would learn everything that they could from these rabbis. And so to say, follow me to these men, who, who only some had been committed to John. The rest were men who had been passed up for discipleship or who for one reason or another were not able to follow rabbis. Jesus goes to these men and he says, follow me, I want you now, not to learn from me like in a classroom, but I want you to walk through life with me so closely that it's like you're covered in my dust and my sandals. And by doing that, you will see what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And what's incredible about it is what we then know was going to happen is that Jesus is going to spend years with these men showing them so clearly what it means. It's almost like God himself came in the flesh and said, I'm going to show you exactly what it looks like in a way that you can relate to to actually live like you're a part of the kingdom of God. That is actually what he did. And for us, to say, I will give you not just one account or two accounts or three accounts of this. No, I'm selling this like an infomercial. I will give you four accounts, four gospels, four perspectives from four individuals that don't contradict one another, but rather show you how people with different personalities and perspectives would describe these very same events. If you're into the details and you like the long form, there's one for you. If you're into poetry and things that sound more beautiful and there's depth that you can interpret, John's your book and that's why I like it a lot. There's different gospels that show us different things, and they give us the clearest sense possible that we could get of what it looks like to actually live like Jesus. Because what it means to follow him is to say, I'm going to actually wake up each day and ask myself the question how would Jesus live today? How would he handle this situation? And more importantly, where is he going? Because saying follow me doesn't just mean be like me. It literally meant I'm going somewhere. Go there with me. So to be a disciple of Jesus meant to be moving towards people who hadn't yet heard the gospel and who needed to hear about the good news of the kingdom of God. Discipleship is asking someone to show you how to live, which can be really easy if you're a little child and you don't know how to live yet and you depend on people to show you how to live, which is why you see examples of children and the faith that comes from being a child because they're like, I don't know how to do a lot of these things. I need you. I depend on you. And if you've ever gotten married to somebody, you know how difficult it can be to learn how to live, and then they learn how to live, and then you start getting married, living together, and then you have to figure out how to take two people who already think they know how to live and now figure out another way to live. It's hard to be taught how to live when you think you already know it. It's hard when you feel like you've already grown up and you've learned how things should be and who you are and how you need to be. When someone comes along and says, now I'm gonna teach you how to actually live and what your life actually ought to be like. But this is what discipleship means. And following Jesus might sound like a really great option if your life is totally a mess and you're like, I really honestly, whatever. Yes, take it, take it all. I'll be born again. I want a new start. I want a fresh start. I'm making a mess of this thing. And we often think of people needing Jesus as people whose lives are just a total mess, who would have no problem admitting, I don't know how to live this thing, I'm not doing a good job of it. And yet most of the people that Jesus encountered were not people who were saying, my life's fallen apart, you're my last option. It was people who had relatively decent lives and thought they had things figured out. And the people that ended up having to change the most were those who were the most confident in the lives that they were already living. A lot of times it was religious people. Most of the time it was religious people. If you want to know what discipleship looks like, we went about a year ago through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's so clear there where Jesus just talks about it. But there's one of the ways that you can look at the Sermon on the Mount really briefly and you can see what discipleship looks like is in the contrasts that you see there. There's several of them one of them is Jesus gives a contrast between uh, going, he says, you're going to go through a gate. And he says that as you go through the gate, there's either a wide gate or a narrow gate. And the wide gate is going to be easier. It's going to be, you won't have to do much to have to go through that gate. You won't have to merge over. You won't have to drop things and let go of things. You won't have to get through a tight space. Whereas the narrow gate is one that you'll have to really think about. And this really speaks to the discipline and the shedding of things and the getting aligned with where Jesus is going. Uh, And And he's talking a lot of times in the Sermon on the Mount about this internally, that like a lot of that work is done inside. You look in yourself, within yourself, and you say like, what am I actually doing? What am I caring about? What am I motivated by? What are my desires? And you bring those things in line with Jesus, and that heads you into the narrow gate. But there's also this sense that uh, you have to let go of things. And you guys, if you've ever been flying, and you go to the airport, and you're checking bags... And you know the limit is like 50 pounds for a bag. And you're weighing it at home. You like st- we do the thing where you stand on the scale and then you pick up the suitcase and then you try to see, you always need two people to do it. Because we wanna get as much as we can in the bag, but we know that there is nothing worse than getting to the airport and then being like, oh, you're three pounds over, sorry. And you have to open your bag up right there and you have to pull a bunch of stuff out, right? We are fortunate, we have very adorable kids and we take them with us and they, they get us a pass on a lot of things like that. Last time we flew, four pounds over she was like four pounds over, but Tegan was helping me, you know, with stuff. He was being a helper. She thought he was so cute. And so she just, I think that's why she gave us the four pounds. So before you get mad or anything, you're welcome to take my kids anywhere you want to go and you can just take them. I don't care. Take them on your vacation. They'll get you free stuff. There's a contrast between trees that produce good fruit and bad fruit. So it's not just internal. It's actually, it's not like, oh, this is an internal thing, discipleship. I'm going to feel differently. I'm going to have a different perspective on things. But the God of the universe wouldn't ever care about the things I do, the way I live, my, the mechanics of my life. He doesn't care about the choices that I make. and the, the, that's, that's just too small for him to be concerned with. No, Jesus says, the way that you live, a person's life will produce a certain kind of fruit And one fruit will make it evident that they're a disciple of mine. And another fruit will make it evident that they're not. And even if they say all the right things, and even if they talk a big game, you'll know by the fruit of their life and by the fruit of the ministry that they have. He says that there's uh, a final judgment that comes, and there will be those who are judged well and those who are judged poorly. And so he says, in the end, this is going to matter on a scale that you can barely conceive of. And the question that you will ask yourself, even if it's harder now, is where will I be standing then when when the God of the universe, uh, when I'm facing him? Will I be one who can say it's because of Jesus? It's because I'm a follower of his. He's the one. He's the reason that I can stand before you here. Or will we be turned away? But it's not just... What happens after this life, it's about here, because there's another contrast. It's between these two builders in the Sermon on the Mount. And the contrast is there's a firm foundation that you can build your life on, and that's following Jesus. And then there's the sand, which is easier to build on the sand. You don't have to dig down. You don't have to work on your foundation. You just build. And it seems okay for a while, and then the storms come, and things get crazy, and it starts to shake, and things start to fall apart. This idea of building on a firm foundation, it makes more sense the older people get. Because as you live more life, you see the storms that come. You see the changes that can come. And you realize, oh yeah, a firm foundation is a really, really good thing. And so this is what Jesus describes discipleship as. Someone who follows me versus someone who doesn't. And as he calls uh, Philip to follow him, Philip then goes, and again, the natural response of somebody who follows Jesus, who hears about Jesus, is to go and tell someone. So he goes and he tells Nathaniel, and he, and he tells him about Jesus. And Nathaniel says this great thing. He's like, he's from Nazareth. Well, what good thing ever came out of Nazareth, right? basically Nazareth, it's like the armpit, right? Uh, I used to live in Bakersfield, California. It was easy. We were just like, that's it right there, right? If you drive through Bakersfield, it's smelly. It's kind of the armpit of California. Okay, here's the deal. Don't get mad at me. I asked someone, what's the armpit of Oregon? And they said, well, I can tell you what it used to be for sure. They said it used to be Albany because you drive through that place before and it stunk. And now if that upsets you, talk to me after church. I'll tell you who told me that and you could talk to them. Okay. If there's another, I mean, I'm a blank canvas. I just moved here. I think it's all beautiful and wonderful. That's why I had to ask someone else. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We get some honesty here, right? You got to know yourself. Yes. It's like, what good thing can come out of there? Because we expect the Messiah to come out of somewhere much more impressive, a place that's impressive. Nathaniel's great. Jesus says there's no deceit in this guy. He's basically saying, this guy's not putting on airs. This guy's not trying to impress anybody. This guy is saying what everyone else is probably thinking, which is, what? Who? From where? Give me a break, right? And he comes with a sense of skepticism. And it's the first person that we see in this account, in this gospel, who's kind of skeptical of Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus uh, with Philip, and, uh, and Jesus does something. He, he tells him something about himself that is so small. It's like the smallest thing. He says, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. That is not a massive miracle, I think. I think there are other things Jesus does that are going to be way more mind-blowing. But he does this thing that is so small. And, and, and a lot of commentators, and I would definitely agree, you kind of got to wonder, what was happening under that fig tree, right? Like, is he, is he having some kind of a conversation with God? Is he, is he even saying something that a lot of us have said, like, God, if you're real, if you're there, if the Messiah really is coming, whatever, then show me, give me a sign, whatever. Or is he just literally napping under a fig tree and, you know, being lazy? Jesus says, either way, I saw you when you run to that fig tree, saying to him, I supernaturally can see you. I know you. And in this tiny little thing, he says to Nathaniel, who's the skeptic and doubts him, he says, all you need to know is that I know you. And there are these things that God does in our life, especially when we're at the point that Nathaniel's at, and they can seem so small and trivial when you tell other people about them too, but it's these moments when God shows you that for as big as I am, that I am a personal God and I actually do know you and I see you, and so trust me in that and begin to take steps of faith towards me in the right direction. And so what Jesus says to him is he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What Jesus is referring to here, this sounds a little bit random, right? This is really spiritual talk. What is he talking about? How does this translate? Jesus is making a reference to something back in Genesis 28 that we call Jacob's ladder. And Jacob, uh, the patriarch of the faith, the Israelite people, uh, he, or one of them, he has this dream. He's wandering, he's, 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 uh, he's kind of traveling for a long time and he gets so tired that he falls asleep and he uses a rock for a pillow. It's like a funny part of the story, I think. It's just, he was so tired, he just found, oh, that looks like a real nice rock and he used it as a pillow. And he fell asleep, slept like a rock and he, that's a Matt joke for you. And he had a dream and in this dream, God shows him a ladder a physical ladder. And this ladder, on this ladder, angels ascend and descend. They go up and they go down. And this was a kind of a crazy idea to somebody at the time where to interact with God was not something that you thought about doing on a personal level. And what he shows him through this vision, this dream, and Jesus is communicating to Nathaniel is so important. He's saying to him, I am that ladder. Because people would have known that, that account. I am the latter. I mean, think about it however you want. That's fine. I'm the latter. And angels who are seen as God's messengers, they're a messenger. They come from God with messages. They come and communicate from God. They go back to God with communication and messages. He's saying, I'm the latter. And through me, in me, you will be able to experience and know God. And that is a huge deal. There is no way to overstate the significance of that. Jesus says to him that in me, what you will ultimately see is heaven. He has taken this little miraculous thing and told Nathaniel to take a step of faith. And he says, and if you take that step of faith and begin following me, you will see God. You will see the kingdom of God. You will talk to God. You will hear from God through me. He says, that will happen, which is impossible to describe the significance of in any one of our lives. The idea that we could ever actually do that, that we could actually be connected to God in a a vivid and real enough way that it is like we're communicating with him and he's present in our lives. And Jesus says, that's what you will experience. You will constantly have access and connection with God. And the truth about this is this, if you don't want God, then you won't want this. He's saying like, ultimately, this is not about Jesus is the guy who knows the future. Jesus is the guy who heals people. Jesus is the guy who fixes things. Jesus is the guy who showed up to save us from all of our Roman oppressors. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, and ultimately he's going to make life better for everybody, which is why so many people say, okay, fine, I'll follow Jesus for a while. The ultimate end of this, where we're headed is this, to see God, to experience God. And if you don't want God and want to experience God, then you probably will struggle to find satisfaction as you follow me. And and it doesn't mean don't follow Jesus if you're not attracted to the idea of being connected to God. It's ask yourself that question, what am I seeking? What am I looking for? Ever since the fall of man, Adam and Eve said, I don't need God here. I can do it myself. I can find a way to be satisfied myself without God. And ever since then, we've been doing that. And what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel is he's saying, if you come with me, if you follow me, then you will be able to once again have God there where he's supposed to be. I think the reason why when we talk about discipleship We can be, oops, sorry about that. I don't know what that was. You see something, say something. When we talk about discipleship, we talk about all these different things. We have all these different understandings. And I think the majority of the reasons why we mean so many different things by it and we're confused by it is because we simply apply the word discipleship to whatever we're doing we say, if I'm a follower of Jesus, then I'm a disciple. Whatever I'm doing, right? If I'm working 80 hours a week and I'm struggling to see my family in between that and catch some sleep and get up and do it again, then I guess if I'm a follower of Jesus, that's discipleship. I'm just trying to find a way to make it work in there. For some people, it's like, no, I'm going to spend all my time doing spiritual things alone, talking to people about Jesus, and I won't, I'll do as little as possible outside of that. That's what discipleship means. For other people, it's, discipleship is, I guess, I just get as involved as I can in my church. I do all the things they tell me to do. I participate in all the ministries. I come to church. I serve. I help. I give. I do all those things. That's discipleship, apparently. And I think for, for, for all of the different ways that we ask ourselves, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? We have to ask ourselves this question. Is following Jesus either something, or really make the statement, following Jesus is either something that you do when you aren't busy doing something else, or it's what you do that dictates everything else. Following Jesus is either something that you do when everything else is done when you've done all the other things that you need to do. It's the thing that you fit into the compartments that are free in your life. Or following Jesus is what dictates your life and all the things that follow after. The truth is it's the latter. But that's a very difficult thing for many of us to wrap our minds around. But I can understand and relate to those who struggle the most with weighing the gravity of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus even says, consider the cost of this when you follow me. And I can understand people who struggle to feel like you're not talking about something trivial. You're talking about life. You're talking about giving your life to something. That's a huge thing to consider taking a step to do. And I think it's important that we recognize that and we recognize the importance of it. When I was uh, in college, I, I lived in Southern California. I drove on the freeways. You're never going to guess where this is going. I drove on the freeways and one morning I woke up and I saw in the paper this picture, and it was for a car accident on the Long Beach Freeway. And you look at this picture, and you go, how did that happen? How did that, I mean, look at the cars, they're coming for. how did that happen? How did this happen? How could an accident like that with so many cars happen on that scale? And the reason it happened was because one morning during the morning commute, So much fog rolled in from the ocean, and it was so thick that people couldn't see while they were driving. But because it was Southern California, people just drove anyway. And a lot of my family lived in Bakersfield at the time, and they had such thick fog come in often that they would have fog delays. They couldn't even go to school because the fog was so thick they knew it'd be dangerous to drive in. And they're like, yeah, we're smart. We know just don't drive in a thick fog. Uh, But of course, you know, the Southern Californians didn't do that. We said, we're just going to drive. That's what we do. We're going to just get in our car, we're going to go. And car after car was driving into an accident that had already happened because they couldn't see it 20, 30, 40 feet, 100 feet in front of them. And it got to the point as cars are piling up in the fog, but people are getting out of their cars, they're honking their horns, they're yelling and screaming, stop, 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 stop. And cars finally began to stop, but it wasn't until 121 cars got involved in a pile-up. And it ended up covering both sides of the road. And they said it was the scariest, worst sound they could hear, Car crash after car crash after car crash. It was like something out of a terrible movie. When you are in a situation, we we are constantly in situations in life where where we follow things casually without thinking about them because we don't have to. You see a line somewhere, you get in line because that's what you do to buy some food. You see a group of people somewhere and that's where you have to go in order to get what you want to get. And it's not a big deal and we don't have to weigh the significance of it. But there are times in life when we are called to, when we are heading in a direction and going somewhere and we recognize that we need to stop for a second and be a little bit cautious because of the stakes involved. And the truth is the Bible describes the world that we live in as living in a fog, as struggling to see clearly right in front of us sometimes. And so I can understand those who say, when you talk about following Jesus, I need to slow down and I need to take a second and think about this because I don't want to drive into my own destruction by devoting my life to something that isn't ultimately real or true or going to, going to pan out in the way that I'm, ask, I'm, I'm going to see it because I'm being asked to give quite a bit, it seems, to follow him like a disciple followed the rabbi. There was a guy in my last church named Mike, and uh, we, we met for coffee, and he had been coming to church for 10 years with his family, and he believed so much of what he heard, but he kept saying, I struggle to know if I have enough faith to actually say that I'm a follower of Jesus, and he was scared about that. He said, I, I'm no, I don't want to get baptized. I don't think I'm ready to say that I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus because I still have questions about these things. I still struggle with these things. And we talked about it, and he said, how do you know when it's time to do something like that, when you're ready? And I said, look at the disciples. Look at all the different places that they were at when they began to follow Jesus. But what did it mean to follow Jesus? It didn't mean that they knew everything, and they believed perfectly everything, and they had everything figured out. It meant to follow Jesus that you started following Jesus. He said, you began walking with him, knowing that you would keep going in that direction and that as you did, he would show you and he would give you faith. And so this is what a disciple did. And when Mike got baptized, our church had a celebration when he came out of the water like none other that I had experienced because he was finally free to be able to walk with Jesus and follow Jesus knowing that he didn't have to have it perfectly figured out. I understand what it is to weigh a decision and it's important to do it. It's important because the stakes are high. Because you're being asked to give your whole life to something, believing that, that it will be worth it, that it will pay off, or that it's simply true. Now, for me, I can say, above all else, the truth is the thing that matters. For me, above all else, I can't live knowing in the back of my mind that it's just for some fleeting, untrue thing that satisfies a lot of people. That, that I have to believe that something is true, and if it is, then I will live by it, even if it makes life harder. But we have to ask ourselves this question. What does it mean to really follow Jesus? And some of us need to ask here today, who are even following Jesus right now, what am I looking for? What am I here for? What do I want out of this? What do I want out of Jesus? Now, what he promises, we see all the way with Nathaniel. What he promises is he promises God. And we know from the rest of the Gospels that the freedom and the fulfillment and the joy that come from God himself, it's worth it. But if we're seeking something else, if we're looking for something else, will we be dissatisfied with what Jesus has to offer? And why is that? And there are some who have never said, I'm gonna follow Jesus, who are familiar with him, who have heard plenty of things about him, but have said, "I'm, I'm not ready to do it, it's too big of a step, it's too big of a thing, or honestly, I don't even really think much about it. I just figure if I'm around enough people who do, then it kind of counts like I'm part of the group. And for, for you, there are only two options. There's actually three, but the first one is so bad, I don't even want to say it. I'll say it first. Why would I do that? I will. The first option is say no, I won't follow Jesus. I won't do it because it doesn't make sense, it doesn't seem worth it. The two options that are really options is number one, to say, I will begin to do that today. There's no greater decision that I can make than to say, I will follow him. I will walk with him. He can be my rabbi and I will be his disciple. And that will dictate the course of my life from this point on. It will dictate the course of my life from this point on. It will not be the thing that I do that fills in the cracks of all the other parts of my life. It will not be something to plug into one missing compartment that now gives me the best balanced life that I can have. Or if you can't say that today because you're just not sure and you just have questions and you just don't even understand, this is the first time you've ever heard about it, then the other option is you find someone as soon as you possibly can and you say, here is what I think and here is where I'm at and here is what is holding me back and here is what makes it hard for me. You find me, you find Pastor Dave, Pastor Matt, Pastor Sue, you find a small group leader, you find it's the person who brought you if you like them and you ask them, you talk with them, But if you can't decide today, then you talk with somebody about why you can't and what it is that's in the way. Because what Jesus offers, what he offers is God himself. And it seems like the cost is high because there's self-denial involved. But he also says that it will be so apparent to you that this is true, that this is right, that your first instinct and response will not even be to think about how it benefits you. Your first response will be to immediately want to go and tell someone else to say, here am I, send me. Let's pray. Father, we are so profoundly grateful for the fact that in the fog of this world that we live in, you bring clarity, Lord. And we, I mean, so many of us, when we're honest, we have to admit we are here for reasons other than you. We're here for for things that we want and need in our own lives to benefit it and make it better, Lord. Or many of us just don't even really think about why we're here. We just are. Father, I I pray that you would, as we just worship you, as we reflect on you, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us the ability to think clearly and understand why are we here, what do we want? And I pray that you would give us a glimpse of how incredible and wonderful you are, Lord. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet come to know you and follow you and wants to, that you would give them the courage to take the step of faith that we saw Nathaniel take. That as we worship, that they would just pray these words, Father, I know that you are my creator, that you made me and all of what is around me, and that you made me to trust in you, and yet I haven't trusted in in you. I haven't lived in you. I haven't looked to you. I've looked to myself, and that's sin, Lord. And I recognize that, and I repent of it and I turn away from that life of rebellion to you, and I want to live facing you, pursuing you now, that I will do that for the rest of my life, and today is the first step of it, Father. Lord, I say this knowing that it is not my strength, it's not my knowledge, it's not my will or my discipline that makes me a good follower of yours. It is what an incredible rabbi Jesus is. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Father, those are words that we sing and want to mean with our whole hearts, but at the same time are aware of how difficult it is to truly, truly surrender all to you, God. For some, it's because we don't, we're afraid that it's not worth it. Um, for some, it's because we've surrendered to you and have experienced difficulty after. For some of us, it's because we struggle to have a big enough view of who you are, to truly believe that you're a God worth surrendering all to. But God, ultimately, we know and we recognize that you, the creator of our universe, our Father in heaven, our creator, call us to surrender to you, not because of what we get out of it, not because of what it does for us or our lives, but because you are worthy of it, God. Give us just a glimpse of your glory so that we can surrender to you freely, knowing that you're a God who's worth surrendering to. And that regardless of how we feel about ourselves or the world around us, that we would see you clearly, Lord. If we can see you clearly, then we will walk towards you and follow you. It's in your name that we pray, amen. God bless you guys, have a great week.